You're listening to The Times. Go to thetimes.co.uk. Every goal, every game, everywhere. The Times and the Sunday Times. Now with goals. Hello and welcome to the game. I'm Gabriel Marcotti with a football podcast from The Times where Premier League fans can get every goal, every game, everywhere. Don't forget, you can catch the highlights from every Premier League game before anyone else simply by downloading the Times app to your smartphone. So a big welcome to my guests this week. It's Stuart Robson, Julian Lawrence, and just to balance out the wussy Arsenal Southern spiel here, we have the great northerner, Ollie Kay. Let's start at White Hart Lane. Let's start right at the end. Let's start with AVB. Now, we know he's a little bit high-strung, um, or can be at times. He handles criticism in, in his own way. Ollie, you were there. Uh, Julian, I believe you were there as well. And Stuart, you guys were all there. But I know for a fact that Ollie was right there in the press conference when um, AVB got into it. Uh, with a colleague of Ollie's and ours from from the Daily Mail. Ollie, I'm assuming you're going to say it's generally not a good idea for a manager to take on an individual in the press, right? I think the problem really in some ways is I think it shows weakness to show that you've read or been alerted to and been upset and offended by a blog on the Daily Mail's website. It wasn't even something that went in the paper. It was a piece of new Ashton had done about... um, First close his time at Porto and suggesting that winning the league and even the Europa League with Porto doesn't make somebody a great manager. I've, I've been in many situations where managers have disagreed and been rattled by um, things that people have written, but I, I think it's rare for, for somebody to go after somebody in a televised press conference. I think doing it in a televised press conference is perhaps a little unwise. He also said it as much in front of the cameras to, to Sky and, uh, or I guess to BT Sport uh, and, and to the BBC as well. Mm-hmm. When he talked about uh, a driven agenda, was he talking about a driven agenda by the media or was he talking uh, about a driven agenda by people within the club, by people between the game, people in the game, by perhaps former managers uh, of certain clubs who don't yeah. like him very much? Yeah, or former, former owner or... Oh, well, or, and, or certainly, club, yeah, yeah. and certainly a, a former sure. owner who... Um, <laughs> You know, uh, the, the man who brought George Graham, I believe, to uh, uh, to, to Tottenham Hotspur. I mean, is, is this what he was talking about? Yeah, I think so, and I, and I agree with Ollie. I, I, I mean, maybe for for Alan Sugar, it's, it's a bit different, but for you know, for the press and the media, why why does he care? Why, why why does he feel the need to respond to something that has been written or said somewhere after a good game by his team? You know, his team played well. It's not like if if you know there, it was another heavy defeat or something, and he felt he felt the need of justifying himself, but. He, w- he was in a strong position being there after that kind of performance, I think, and there was no need for him to do that. And I think he showed weaknesses, and and he doesn't do him any favour with the fans either, because I don't think that's what the Spurs fans want to hear after a game like that. Hey, Stuart, my understanding is that while he has a certain paranoia, leaving aside the issue with the media, we know what the media are like, and, and I think and I'll come to you and Ollie in a minute on this, but the reality is some people who've achieved more in the game, some people who are nicer to the media, get an easier ride because people in the media are, are human too. But some of his paranoia within the club, this is what kind of strikes me because it's my understanding that both Levy and the, the director of football, Franco Baldini, they're both pretty much behind him. And they also kind of feel that except for the horror show um, at Manchester City, the team's doing well and, and they're kind of on track. A, should they feel this way about the job AVB is doing? And B, why can he not 
feel that. Well, is he doing a good job? Should they be backing him? Only time will tell. I mean, they've given him the job. He's got a year and a... Or should they be backing him right now? They should, be backing, loses, they should be backing him If he loses right every now. game from, yeah. you know, from here till... They till, should till, be backing him yeah. right now. He's somebody that is a coach, which I, I approve of as a manager. I think you should be a coach. You should, have, you should be in charge of the, what vision you've got about how the game should be played. You're doing the tactics. You're determining how your team is going to play. So for that reason, I think he, he's the right sort of manager. I don't think he's quite got his tactics right. Uh, they don't get enough support for Soldado. They still play too deep in midfield, the two holding midfield players at times. He's now playing Paulinho as the second centre forward when he's a box-to-box player, really. So there are one or two areas of the, of the team that need adjusting, but I don't think he's doing a particularly bad job at the moment. But I think for, having seen and what, he, what he happened to him at Chelsea, and there at Chelsea there was an agenda. For, to, to get him out and if you talk to any Chelsea fans they, they hate him with the they call him useless he didn't have a clue that most of it came from players within the dressing room talking to the press and then the press publishing that and everybody knows who those players were that tried to get him out and tried to ridicule and that's not did. happening here you it's don't not have because hap- no. no. you also strikes me you don't have sort of veteran club legends no. at Spurs right now the closest thing you have no. is Michael Dawson and mm. you know with all due respect for him he, he's not you know not exactly um Gary and and Mike, Michael Dawson could have had somebody that held a grudge against him at one point because yeah. at the start of AVB, he tried to get rid of yeah, him. Yeah. But now he said, no, actually, you've come back into my plans. Now you're my top centre-half. I'm going to play you. So he's got no axe to grind with the AVB. All right, Ali, you know how the media works, probably more than any of us here. Is there a hidden agenda? Is there, is, is there, is there, and how much do you subscribe to the fact that you know, we in the media, because we're human, we, we tend to treat different people differently, even though maybe we shouldn't? media agenda. I think he's talking about two articles, uh, which both happen to be in the Daily Mail. Maybe I mean, it's the only uh, paper I, he reads. Well, maybe it is, and, and, and maybe he shouldn't. But, um, no, I mean, the, the, the Daily Mail, it's not like the Daily Mail has an agenda against it. I wrote a, quite a supportive piece of AVB the other day, and um, I think the only thing that really lets him down is sort of slight weakness he shows in, in this situation. He, he seems... He seems slightly paranoid. I think the analysis that his teams have gotten and the way he's been criticized tactically on television, um, I think it's just stupid. Mm. It's just not understanding what Soldado does, the stupid heat maps, crap out of context, drawing the little lines. Mm. I mean, you know, I, and, and, and he gets it more than other people. You know, and, and, and I, I think there is some logic to it. I mean, when Alex Ferguson made colossal blunders, you tended to give him a pass because, you know, he was the greatest and, you know, he'd achieved so much before. And maybe with this guy, because he's only had two full seasons of management under his belt, you tend not to do it. But there are certain objective facts. Ahead of the City game, uh, Spurs had, I think, the best or second best defense in the Premier League. I believe they'd taken the most shots on goal uh, and had the second highest shots on target, or, or it was the reverse. When those things happen... It shows that a team is playing well. Their conversion rate was very low. They weren't scoring very many goals. But, again, if I were an analytics guy, I would tell you that it was well, going to regress to some the, kind the, of mean. The, 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 the best game uh, that I saw from a Tottenham point of view or from analysing Tottenham was the Newcastle game. In the first Did they half, play badly? In the second half, they played brilliantly. Yeah. Right. They played brilliantly and cruel. So right. in the first half, the problem was there that Dembele was coming too short to get the ball right. off the centre half. So he made an Ericsson, he started Ericsson, badly. They yeah. made an adjustment, and then he I ran mean, into Tim Cruel, exactly. who turned into into, into the human so, wall. So there you saw China. the you saw the worst of Tottenham, but you also saw the best of Tottenham. They, just they deserve to win the game. They deserve to win yeah. the All game. Right. And that's why. I mean, and, and AVB made a tactical change at halftime to say we're going to play it with more intensity. We're going to play higher up the field. We're going to close squeeze the ball down higher up the field, and that's the way we're going to play. 
play the game. He got it wrong at the beginning, and that's a way I think Tottenham supporters have seen him play quite often with Dembele playing too deep and not enough support for Soldado. But in, in general, I think he's, he's OK. But they've also been disappointed. Not, not a lot this season, but a few times they've been very disappointed. With the money they've invested, the players they have, I think we, we could expect, and Tottenham fans or not, we could expect more and better from that team. You know, I, I actually added up the numbers of this 100 million thing, pound thing that, 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 that people keep throwing up. If you are going to turn it to the numbers, and obviously they lost Gareth Bale, I think it's something like Curicas, Chadley, Lamella, and Kapue, between them, had started, so there's four players between them, it started like 13 games a season. So if these guys haven't really been playing, then I don't think it's fair to write these people off. I mean, I, I picked up a newspaper, they had a picture of Kapue, and it said, poor below that. No, actually, I thought, uh, you might have seen, watched Spurs close yeah. to me, I thought he played very well, actually, when Before he did play, injury. and then the dude got injured. Yeah, yeah. Why don't we just burn him at the stake now, right? <laughs> Ollie, uh, regarding the, uh, the, the, the penalty, um, obviously, AVB was, was very upset with that. Gaiska Mendieta, who I follow on Twitter, also said that should never, ever, ever be a penalty because Welbeck leaves his trailing leg. Now, we can all make the point that Hugo Lloris shouldn't have come out the way he did. I know that the rules on this are, I think, pretty clear, and that is a penalty, but should the rules be different? The, the rules do not encourage referees to give penalties um, for that type of situation where, where the contact is initiated by the, by the attacking player. The fact is that it's just incredibly difficult to see. Wait, so are the you suggesting it shouldn't have been a penalty and the ref and it was just difficult for the referee to spot? There's a grey area with that one. I think sometimes there are penalties where people flick their leg out almost a yard to, to get tripped out. I think that was a that was a matter of inches and um it, it wasn't it wasn't the most blatant example of, of that that you would ever see. But I I I thought Welbeck initiated the contact and, and that it was harsh on Spurs to, to be wow. penalised in that way. But it would take an incredible piece of refereeing to see that because the, the, the sort of deviation from Welbeck was, was so small. It would take incredible refereeing. It would also take the kind of referee who would then get absolutely mullered by the other side as well for, for not giving the penalty. Mm. Anybody disagree with Ollie's assessment? Well, it's, it's always difficult. I was doing a game last night, PSG game. And when attackers go against defenders, there was two examples where the attacker, Ibrahimovic on, on one occasion, sticks his leg across the tackle that's coming in. So the tackle, so the player's going for the ball, and at the last minute, Ibrahimovic sticks his leg across. So he he's makes protecting the, the ball. So he's protecting the ball. Well, that's really what Welbeck. Welbeck was getting there first and just nicking the ball away from Lloris, and Lloris touches him. Whether whether it's whether it's intentional or not, he touches him, and I think the referee had to give a penalty. Wayne Rooney, I thought, turned in a, a very good performance. Um, you, know, you can talk about all right. Well, one of his goals was a penalty, and the other one was Kyle Walker shanking it into his path, but. Beyond that, I thought he did a lot on the pitch for a United side that didn't serve up much. I can't help but notice that it's not the first time that Rooney's played extremely well recently, and it's tended to coincide with Robin Van Persie not being there. Yeah, Julian, yeah. is is I this an issue? Well. I, I think it could become an issue, yeah. I think Rooney's been carrying the team probably since the start of the season. He's been magnificent. Except when Van Persie's carried Except when Van Persie was there, exactly. And that's my point, and I completely agree with you. I'm still not sure they can play... Well, they can play together, obviously, and, and they can do well together. But if you want to take the to have the best out of Rooney, I don't think you can play him with Van Persie, and 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 that would be an issue for so, most so when what Van do you Persie think comes is back. Rooney's best position, like yesterday. But where did you think he played yesterday? 
everywhere, but you give you give him complete freedom. But he, he also has that yeah. number like like centre forward role. Because I, I thought yesterday when he played at centre forward, he didn't affect the game for the first 20, 25 minutes because the passing from the midfield players wasn't good enough. And he then decided, I'm going to have to go and make things happen. So Michael went, Carrick will be back. Yeah, Carrick will be back. So he, exactly. he went back and said, right, I'm going to get on the ball. He started switching the play. He started playing. And they actually got well back to go from the left-hand side to centre forward. The centre. I, I think Wayne Rooney's not a centre forward. I think he's a second striker who can drift into wide areas, go and get the ball, switch. The That's where he's at his best. When he plays as the number nine, as he did for so the first So presumably if Van Persie plays as I think, the nine, I, I, I can, I can think they can work together. brilliantly together. I can't see any you reason. You can get why the best out of Rooney even with Van Persie yes. or with another striker. With with uh, Van think... Persie or another striker. Because Van Persie wants to play through the middle these days. He doesn't want to come wide and drop deep. I think it's the perfect match. I don't know why it couldn't work. When you're a, 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 the star player, you like to be the star player. When Robin Van Persie's playing, he maybe doesn't feel quite so. Because everyone was talking about Robin Van Persie winning the league for Manchester United last year. Suddenly, well, well what about me? I'm a, I'm a good player. I see at Arsenal with Jack Wilshere now, he's not the same player because Aaron Ramsey's come to the fore. And I think Jack Wilshere, his nose has been put out of joint. You know, he's not upset for, for Ramsey with, with Ramsey or, or against Ramsey, but now he's not the player that everyone's talking about. He doesn't feel as needed. He doesn't feel as needed. Yeah. And now Rooney playing without Van Persie feels needed. They just gave a five year contract. To Nani, who, you know, uh, maybe it's just me, but I think in terms of quality and ability on this team is probably one of the top three or four players. Uh, you're nodding, Julian. Are you just I being polite? Or? No, I mean, he scored a f- fantastic goal in, in midweek in the Champions oh. League. And then he doesn't start him yesterday. And there's really some, some stuff that I don't understand what Moyes is doing tactically. Is it something tactical or is, or is there something going on in this it guy's head? Be. Is there something off the pitch? That we don't know about? I mean, see, see I, I, I can't speak for Nani, but I was watching the game and I was only sort of six rows behind David Moyes. And David Moyes kept on turning around to the bench and gesticulating about Cleverly and, and Jones's passing. And the fact that Cleverly, every time he got the ball, he didn't look forward, he went sideways and backwards. But nothing changed. You know, he kept on screaming at the bench and saying, why doesn't he pass forward? Why doesn't he do this? Why does well, it's up to you to then to make changes or to, to, to work at him in, in training to get more creativity out of Cleverly, more creativity out of him. You put them in the side. You know, so there was a problem for Manchester United yesterday. But I think Moyes has seen it. But what he does next week, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. All right, moving on to Stamford Bridge. Now, uh, Basel did the uh, uh, double over Chelsea this year in the, in the Champions League. Southampton was coming into town. They were the flavour of the month. Essien had possibly his worst game ever. And uh, Southampton go 1-0 up, and then serious doubts right through halftime, and then Chelsea storm back and win it. Is this a sign of mental strength? Is it a sign of belief? Is it a sign of Mourinho's tactics? a sign of anything, Ollie? Certainly the mental strength. I mean, that, that, that's, that's been there with Chelsea an awful lot over the last few years. Also, they've had stages where they've looked mentally weak, but they are one of those teams that you would always fancy from... 1-0 down, and perhaps particularly when, when they've got Mourinho managing them. I was slightly surprised by some of the changes he made um, yesterday in, in terms of going to a 4-4-2 and, and Torres and Barr up front, but it worked. It, it, it was a 4-4-2, um, Stuart, but it was a slightly different 4-4-2 because Mata was wide, but he kept cutting inside when, when Chelsea were in possession, mm. which I think is actually probably a decent role for him. I don't know if you can mm. replicate it when everybody's fit, but is this where maybe we, we, we give Mata and Mourinho a, a little bit of credit? Yeah, you've got to give Mourinho credit, you've got to give Mata credit, but the, the, it wasn't so much the change of formation, it was the change of style. 
they were said, OK, if, if Southampton want to press us high up the field, there must be space elsewhere. If we play with two up front and keep getting the ball into the front players, they're midfield players that are pressing and they're going to be bypassed. So now we're playing two centre-halves against two centre-forwards and we get midfield players rushing onto it. That's, that's good, good management, assessing the game, seeing what the opposition are doing and seeing where they're weak. And so is it bad management because Pochettino couldn't hang on? To, I mean, if, if you're 1-0 up away from home, maybe that's kind of where you stop pressing and trying to play on the counter. Yeah, which he had to do. He did do that uh, latterly because he was forced back. You know, Chelsea forced Southampton defend deeper because they played the ball forward. And it's very difficult then for Southampton when they did get the ball to counterattack with any sort of quality because they were unbalanced because the Chelsea had majority of, of, of the possession at that time. And they were always running back towards their own goal. I think it was good tactics from Marina. And that's really how he played in his first spell because they went from back to front quite quickly when teams pressed him because they had Didier Drogba up front who used to hold on to the ball. Other players could go and join him. And it's, it's, you need to have a plan B. And, and Chelsea yesterday and Marina had a plan B. But they should have had a plan A straight away. I mean, everybody knew Southampton would do that anyway. So it was unlucky that they fell behind so early. But from, I mean, even before the game, surely he knew Southampton would press that high and that he would, try, he would have to play another I way. The, so I suppose he thought at the start of the game his players would be good enough to play around that pressure. Maybe, yeah. And, but they weren't good enough to play. And they went 1-0 down after how many seconds it was. 13, so now they've, yeah. got to, they've got to quicken the intensity to get back into the game. They couldn't let it... If it was 0-0, he'd, he may have carried on saying, well, eventually we're going to break them down. Eventually we'll get through. But because they were 1-0 down at half-time and not looking like scoring, I've now got to change the tactics. Yeah, I've got to go from back to front quicker you know maybe it's my my heritage and, and years of uh, of a certain philosophy that's been drilled into my dna but i would have thought it's a kind of a basic rule of football unless you're qualitatively better than the opposition and southampton are not if you're one nil up away from home early you don't press i know it's i mean i i love it when managers do things differently and think outside the box but goodness me, why no, did Pochettino well, keep playing that way? I, I, I mean, this is just so well, but, far but that, out but, there, just yeah, so weird but, 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 and unusual. Is, no, no it, it, it's not because his form of defence is to press the ball. I, I saw Cardiff. Do you, want, do you want him to play like Cardiff did against Arsenal? Where when you're one 0 up, yes, no, absolutely. By Cardiff playing with such fear and dropping deep, it allowed Arsenal to pick their passes up. It allowed them to dictate the pace of the game. It was so easy. If you if you let teams drop off and, and they, or teams drop off and drop off, eventually you'll be picked off. And if you get the ball in the box, somebody's going to get on the end of it. And I, I, Southampton, their way of defending is to press the ball. And the and the higher you press the ball, the less chance people have got to get in it into the front areas. And, and I think Southampton had to keep going that way. But Chelsea did did well. Yeah, I would have thought that once you've taken all, you've, you've put on the other striker, then Chelsea are then seriously undermanned in midfield. Mm. And since you're Southampton and you've got some players who can actually play on the ball, like Lalana and, and Schneider mm. in the middle of the park, maybe what you do is you see, sit deeper, try to keep the ball, make the pitch big, and, and try to but force they Chelsea the ball to come because Chelsea had four players pressing, so they couldn't roll it out. They had to go along with their kicks, Boric. And they don't really have. But you say you say they have four players pressing. You they, they they had they had Mata. Um, Torres, Barr and Hazard Barr and, and Hazard Matter doesn't run yeah no but you can stop the ball if Boric has got the ball and he's looking to throw it out to the left back Matter only has to threaten it and they won't play it at the Spurs game the Spurs-Chelsea game Mourinho changed everything at half time and, and Villas-Boas didn't react straight away and it turned out that Tottenham were in control in the first half and then Chelsea dominated the second half and he finished in a draw and yesterday Mourinho changed everything almost everything at half time again and, and again Pochettino didn't, didn't react at all and, and when he wanted to react, it was too late and they were 2-1 down. And it, it seems weird that managers don't react 
quickly enough. I mean, I, I don't know what you think about it, but yeah. when you see the opposition changing, even a half time, maybe you should think, okay, I'll leave it five minutes, and then in five minutes, yeah, you, maybe right. I should change something. See, at half time, Pochettino didn't need to. He'd say, "Well, just carry on playing the way we are." He's not sure what what Mourinho really? was going to do. But once he saw what Mourinho was going, he might have changed his tactics or just changed his personnel. I thought Pochettino showed a bit of naivety against Arsenal in the game last week. Uh, Southampton were getting back into the game, and he took off Lallana, their yeah. best player, and put on Osvaldo and played Osvaldo up front by him. It, it was a strange decision because that just took the whole sting out of the game, and Arsenal won quite comfortably in the end. But up until that point. Lalana was doing well. Rodriguez was coming off the line. I thought they're going to get back into the game, and then Pochettino made a mistake with his substitution. In my view, anyway. Ali, some of us have been arguing that, um, and I think Mourinho might have argued this as well. That once Fabinho got injured, and once we found out that Essien is not in a good place, that they're severely undermanned in the middle of the park because they have Frank Lampard Jr., who, despite his uh, the suffix at the end of his name, is actually quite old. They have Ramirez, who runs around himself into the ground, and they have. Uh, Mikel, and uh, and this, that's just not enough. So, fair to say they'll be spending some money on a central midfielder in January? Yeah, that, that actually like something that they needed to do for a long time. And when you looked at their, their squad, in fact, the last two seasons, you looked at their squad and their options in central midfield are, are very um, short. And they obviously brought Van Ginkel in, in, in the summer. He got injured straight away and is out for the season. And I, I think they have to work out whether whether he's going to be the long-term bet and, and, and worth waiting for or whether they simply get somebody in of, of, of the required quality in, um, in January. But they would say that they also need a striker because, to me, their centre-forwards are not scoring enough goals, not doing enough work off the ball. But there's a, there's a guy, Everton, who, who I think is quite handy. I think, I think maybe they should start looking at him. I, one final point on this, Julian. In terms of the midfielder, do they need? I'm just throwing this out. Do they need actually to spend money on a quality midfielder, or do they maybe just need a guy who'll just run himself into the ground and do a job short term? Maybe a veteran with some experience. I'm thinking not him necessarily, but a Lasana Diara type, just to give a breather to the guys who are your starters. Because it might upset the balance if you bring somebody in and then Lampard or Ramirez feel threatened. I mean, I personally, I think they should invest for the long term now and not just buy someone like that. Even but they've if, done that in Van Ginkel. Yeah, but he, I mean, he's still very young, first of all. So maybe someone a bit more established already, even if, you know, they, if they need to spend a bit more. But cl- clearly it's a problem. I mean, you know, Lampard is edging towards the end now and, and he's playing far too much, in my opinion, this season anyway. Mikel, Mikel being Mikel and Essien we saw yesterday, I mean, especially the dive, the dive was just brilliant. They, they definitely need someone as early as January, in my opinion, if they want to win the league and if they want to, to go as, you know, really far in the Champions League. It won't be easy because I'm not sure how many solid holding midfielder player would be available in January but I think they, they, they would definitely need one Nobody wants to argue that that someone they need is already at the club and his name is David Luiz uh, David Luiz can play that position uh, I'm But not Mourinho sure that won't play him there Mourinho won't trust him <laughs> in there <laughs> <laughs> No All right. Case goes there all right, moving on to our debate this week, uh, we're going to talk uh, Fulham and Martin Yo coming in. But first, we're going to have another little tiny mini debate. It's well, more like a mini debate. It's just more like me talking, and then you guys can respond if you like. <laughs> Every year around this time, I pick up the newspaper, and it's like usually it seems to be on like the BBC Online. And clubs in in the Premier League uh, have, and I believe in the Football League too, have to publish how much they've spent uh, on on agents' fees and commissions, and it's supposed to be this great sign of transparency. The problem is, it's completely 
out of any kind of context. So this year they spent $96 million, which is about $20 million more than uh, last year. And you get all these sort of stern-faced people saying that it's horrible because, you know, it's money going out of the game. But uh, they make this seem like it's some wonderful show of transparency. If you want to make it a show of transparency, you itemize and you say, okay, so we spent $7 million and we spent half a million to, for a commission on this transfer and $1 million on that transfer and whatever else. And if you really want to go there, then disclose the transfer fees as well and perhaps disclose the wages and the contracts. That is transparency. And that's when you can actually judge whether you're getting value for money. Because, Ali, am I right in saying that a two million pound commission for a very good player who comes on a reasonable fee might actually be a bargain or a two million pound commission on a bad player who doesn't deserve it might actually be a horrible piece of business and really just an excuse to find to, to, to go and, and pay bungs and backhanders. There's a good example of Chelsea buying Eden Hazard 18 months ago or whenever it was. Manchester City and Manchester United were, were both in for it and, and said that the terms being demanded by the agent were going to be too big. There was no way you could um, you could justify the kind of pay- payment that the agent w- wanted in order to make that deal happen. Now I don't know whether that was a you know that was purely going to the agent's pocket or whether it was going to be split with the player or whatever. If the the price of making that ha- that deal happen, in addition to the transfer fee, was for example three million pounds, you could argue that paying an extra ten percent or whatever to, to make that deal happen is worth it to get a player of Hazard's quality. I think what we've seen happen in the past which is more of an issue, is players signed um, the fees which bear no relation to their value to do favours to certain agents. And um, I think that is far more of an issue. So it's not always the size of the payment, it's more the um, w- whether it seems completely out of context for the worth of the player. Unless they, unless they show, for example, what the commission on Mesut Ozil's transfer is, how much Arsenal paid in, in commission for that transfer, to whom... The percentage or whatever, that's interesting. The rest is completely useless. To know that Hull Tigers spend seven million on their transfer commission. You know, if Hull City spend two and a half million on, on their transfer commissions, I don't think anyone cares, even not the, 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 the club fans. And and it's it's interesting though because FIFA Pro are thinking about trying to reform a bit the, the way you know agents are working and the whole transfer things and and I just don't think that help at all. One thing I would say is that, uh, going slightly off uh, the, the subject, it's a shame that now the scouting system, clubs don't need to run scouting systems. They spend fortunes on scouting systems and then they don't buy the players off the scouts, they blame off the agents, which is a real concern. They're not buying the players because the scout has seen them 15 times and he's the best player for our position. He buys them because he's available because we're friendly with that agent and that but, agent can do us a favour. But surely that's also a, fact, a factor of the... You have a, a clubs where there is no director of football you have a manager who has to buy and sell players as well as coach, and some of them do coach, as you know. How is he supposed to know people? And so he develops a relationship of trust with an agent rather than perhaps with a chief scout who, you know, he didn't bring in, isn't his guy, and who's worked for the club. But yeah. I, I, I just think that, that some of the deals that I see take place uh, and some of the way that the, the clubs deal with only certain agents... The players aren't being bought because it's right for the club. They're being bought because it's right for the agent and maybe right for one or two of the people at the football club. Now, uh, there was a managerial sacking this week. We we like to devote our our debate to uh, managerial changes. We did it last week, of course, when um, Julian's mate Tony Pulis came in at Palace. Um, Now, Mourinho is no longer the full manager. 
this was a long time coming. It seemed to me that, you know, for the past two months, people have talked about how, you know, is it going to be Yole or Holloway, the next to go, and whatever else. Ali, I want to get your take, but before we get to Renee Millenstein, who's, who's taking over from, um, and who's already there, I guess, in some kind of coaching capacity, I'm a bit mystified by Yole because I don't quite understand it. I thought he played some some decent football, certainly the reputation for it before. He'd been at the club a while. He, he'd done okay. He seemed to buy all these skillful players. Um, and in fact, apart from Scott Parker and Steve Sidwell, and I'm not picking on them saying they're not skillful, but obviously they mm-hmm. play like a different role. Everybody else in terms of strikers and midfielders is, I think, a very gifted player. Presumably he had the license to, to bring these people in. He had the aptitude to play a lot of skillful players on the pitch. Why didn't it work? To me, if you look at, I mean, who were the most skillful players of the lot? I mean, if you look at Ruiz, Tarat, Berbatov, they are players who, yes, are extremely skillful, yes, are extremely creative, but they're not the players that you would ideally turn to for a team in the, in the bottom half of the table, relegation battle. I don't want to talk about, uh, you know, cold and windy um, Tuesday nights in Stoke in December, but they are not the players to um, give a team, in the Premier League at least, the the sort of qualities that, that they need to, to stay up. I mean, Parker and Sidwell are one department, and and then you've got all these players who are that don't pull their sleeves up, that don't um, that don't graft at all. They don't run a lot of them, and it struck me watching them a few times lately. I, I, I think they look like a lazy team, totally lazy team. I think they look physically lazy. I don't think they look like they are really thinking tactically. And I, I've got to say, I, I hardly ever advocate managers to be sacked. I, I, I felt that Fulham were a team who had been coasting under Yale for, for months. Some people have a driven agenda against AVB. Ollie Kay evidently has his own <laughs> driven agenda against JOL. Um, Julian, I, I take on board what Ollie says, but what's weird to me is Martin Yule's, he coached at, at Spurs, he'd been in this country a while. He presumably brought these guys in because he had a plan for how they would play. And I, I think Ollie's right. On paper, these aren't necessarily the the kind of guys you want together. I mean, Swansea, another team who had a lot of skillful ball playing players, but they also tended to do some work off the ball more than these guys do. Does it surprise you that somebody could get it could get it so wrong, or or was but, it he trying to do something very difficult to get all these talented guys to work together, and it just didn't didn't work? I, I think there's a bit of that. I think he's been a bit let down by the players, though. I mean. But Berbatov, for example, and I mean Rees. and maybe he tried. He tried to be too clever and tried to play too good football for what Fulham had in in terms of squads. You know, especially that they clearly seem completely unbalanced t- tactically. As in, like those players that Oli, I think rightly so, said they were a bit lazy, and at the back they they completely poor because they 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 well far too exposed for for what they're capable of. I think, and and that's probably be, most, mostly part of the manager. And I mean, I agree with you. I liked him. I think I don't think he's a bad manager at all. But I think he got it completely wrong this season in terms of the players he signed, and and the way he set the team up so far this season. The funny thing about uh, we all talk about managers. None of us know what managers are like because we don't ever go to the training field. We don't see what they do. So they get reputations on what the results they've got before, or bad results, good results. And when Martin Yol went to, to Fulham, uh, everyone said, you know, he did a, did a decent job at Spurs. He obviously went to Hamburg. He went to Ajax. And, and, and uh, you know, he's a good manager. Things that were coming out from Fulham from people I know said they were shocked that no work was being done. 
it was almost that he was just the manager and there's the team and you know do a bit of training a bit of a bit of uh, a bit lazy yeah <laughs> He was he was lazy in terms of not having any sort of tactical work being done. They played eight aside games. It was just keep the players happy because he wasn't like that at Spurs. From from, no, from, from, from what I've been told, when he was there, he was actually. But that's quite what they're saying was going on at Fulham, and you can tell from the. I mean, I saw them against Southampton. Um, so Ollie's mentioned two or three games. You've mentioned a couple of games. I mentioned the Southampton game where. It was the worst performance I've seen from a team in the Barclays Premier League for quite some while. They were outrun, they were outthought, they were outfought. I mean, they just showed nothing. They could have lost the game 6-0. Southampton looked like world beaters and Fulham looked hopeless. And having seen that performance and some of the players' attitude in that game, there was only going to be one conclusion. Joel was going to go. So, Moylenstein came in in sort of a a coaching capacity, I believe, two weeks ago. Um, Now he's been promoted. He made a funny joke about how he, you know, he came in to help Goose Hit Inc., another guy who, in some ways, is kind of like you know Martin Yule writ large. Uh, and then Hitting got the sack at Anji, and then of course Moinsing got the sack later. But what I'm curious because you, you've been in that, in that position as well, so he was uh, an assistant to Sir Alex Ferguson at Manchester United. And he was I don't know if his title was first team coach or, or or whatever it was. When clubs look at guys like that, obviously they don't have. There's no body of work there. They haven't never seen these people in charge of their own team. So they have to make some mm-hmm. kind of leap of faith. And obviously, Fulham weren't at Manchester United's training sessions. Mm-hmm. So what kind of stuff do they rely on? I mean, what, what kind of stuff would, 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 would you ask a first-team coach you were looking to hire? Uh, you know, I, I'm presuming you'd get references from people who've worked with him. Mm-hmm. Um, what other stuff would they be looking for? Uh, I'm different to most. If I was the ch- chairman of a, of a football club or a chief executive and appointing a coach or a manager, the first thing, one of the interviews would be, right, our youth team are going to be out on the training field at 10 o'clock on a, on a Thursday morning. Part of your interview is to come. I want you to put on a session to show me what your vision and philosophy is about the way you want the game to be played. So you've got a two-hour session, show me what you're going to do. And you're going to be taking it. Nobody else, you're going to be taking it. Without knowing any of these youth team players. Without knowing any of the youth team I'm, I want you to show me, because you can walk into, you know, if you're a good coach, you walk into any training ground and say, this is my philosophy, this is how I want to, I want to coach the team. This is what I'm going to try and get from the team. This is my style of play. It doesn't matter who the players are, you're, just show, you're showing the chairman that you can coach and you're going you're gonna, to uh, take that session and prove in half an hour, two hours, oh, from half an hour to the okay, two-hour mark. Do you think a lot of... They were, no, oh. they won't do it. That's the problem. Well, because because the, guy would, the guy would say to you, I'm Renee Morlenstein, I, was a, I, I coach Manchester United, I won all these league titles... You know, that's, I don't need that's to go why, and perform That's why some of the coaching that goes on in the country okay, right. isn't quite good enough because it's all on reputation. Nobody actually sees what people do until they go into the football club. Or you can go on his own website and read on his own website that he's one of the best coaches in the world and then you think... Perfect. Yeah. Let's uh, let's let's I get him. Not been to Renee Molenstein. I'm you sure should. Ollie has because he's very well prepared, right? And you wrote it I today have, as well, I have, Ollie, didn't I, you? I, I quoted it in my piece this morning. He does, it does say on his own website he is on evidence one of the world's best first team coaches. The website, by the way, is reneemolenstein.co.uk. No, I. Can you can you tell? I mean, obviously, you, you covered United quite close. You you, you live there, uh, not. In, we know you live in lovely Rippenden, but um, to those of us who live inside the M25, the north is all very close. What do you know about about this guy? You know, I've talked about him as, as an unbelievable sort of one-to-one coach. Uh, somebody, when he was leaving in the, um, in the summer, and I said to somebody at United, what will he do next? Will he want to be a, a manager somewhere? And they said to me, there's no way he'll be a manager. 
because just didn't have the personality for that. All right, enough of this nonsense. Time for some quick hits. Arsenal win 3-0 at Cardiff. Aaron Ramsey scores two and doesn't celebrate. Stuart, would you rather talk about what Wenger is doing right this year or discuss the politics of not celebrating against your former clubs? I'm not going to talk about either. I'm going to talk about Aaron Ramsey and what he did from the end of last season to the start of pre-season here. Because at the end of last season, he was a player that didn't look strong enough, didn't look to have much confidence, he didn't look as though he could run past people, to being what looks like the Barclays Premier League's best player at the moment. He's been absolutely outstanding. He looks fit, he looks confident, he looks as though he's got better skills, he can see a pass, and he's scoring goals. So whatever he did from the end of last season to the beginning of this preseason, players need to get on it. Well, you're, you're, you, this is why you're here to provide. You're, you're telling us, no disrespect, something that you know. Well, what even, he's done, even what, though what, this bucket could see. Yeah, well, but you're he, here to provide insight and tell us why has this change happened? Well, he's gone away. I would imagine with a fitness coach over the over the summer when everybody else went on holiday. He went away with a fitness coach. He did some some speed work. He did some uh, some fitness work. He he went away from the football club and made sure he got somebody that did some individual training with him. Got himself fully fit because it was a massive change in, in the space of six weeks every pre-season game this isn't just happened in the in the in the uh, the Premier League every pre-season game he was head and shoulders above everybody else so he did something in that five or six weeks I don't know what he did but I would imagine it was some sort of fitness work with with an individual coach that's given him the confidence to go and go past people with pace we're sure it's the same guy it's not a tour of Vidal wearing an Aaron <laughs> Ramsey mask and doing double duty no no to collect two just wondering. Liverpool lose against the Hull City Tigers. Ha, ha, ha. No, Hull City. Oli, uh, how much should we criticise Rodgers and praise Bruce? I'd rather concentrate on Hull. I thought, I thought they were superb. Three at the back. I thought it worked really well. You had Livermore and uh, Huddleston controlling midfield and passing the ball well and, and dominating that area against um, Gerard Lucas and Henderson. And it was... Uh, I, I just thought it was... Uh, I thought it was a really, really good... Performance. Yeah, I'm going to hold my hand up and say uh, big props to Hull in terms of results because when I came up, I, I looked at the manager, I looked at I looked at these players, and I thought, my goodness, like you know, this is going to be the worst team in the Premier League by a country mile, except for Palace. Um, but they're proving everybody wrong, and the results are there. So good job, Steve Bruce. Manchester City cruised to a three 0 win over Swansea. Samir Nasri scores two and plays his best game for ages. Julian has Nasri turned some kind of corner. Or will he go back to being the inconsistent guy we know and love? I think he's all down to Pellegrini. I mean, Nasri needs to feel loved. It was not the case with Mancini, for at least most of the time. And it's or with various people who managed him while playing yeah, with Yeah, very true. But also, he feels much better with Pellegrini. He likes playing with two up fronts when he plays wide and then can drift in the centre, like, like, for example, his first goal uh, yesterday. So I think he, he could have turned a corner, definitely, under Pellegrini. He works harder at training, he looks fitter as well, and he's, he's, he's happy in his mind. So maybe, maybe it's a new Sami Nasri. What's really scary about Nasri is that as good as he is and can be, he's like the seventh or eighth best player at the club, in my <laughs> humble opinion. West Ham pummel Fulham and Carlton Cole gets on the score sheet. Uh, Stuart? Will Big Sam be at Upton Park next season? And should he be? And I ask you because you have a special affection for the Hammers. Uh, I don't. The, the one thing I, I'm not sure about with uh, Big Sam, as people like to call him, 
I'm not sure what his game plan is these days. I go to West Ham and I see one week they play in a certain style and the next week they play in another style. I don't think there's too much pattern to their play. And when I'm looking at a manager and how good he is, I like, I'm like. i almost, without knowing who the manager I could tell from their team shape yeah, and the way Andy they're playing. Andy Carroll's not there, right? Andy Carroll's not there, but then they should have had a, another centre forward in, 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 in as a backup to play that system. For me, Sam Allardyce uh, shouldn't be there next year. I'd like to see somebody else take over at West Ham. Yeah, I get the feeling the uh, owners feel the same way. But uh, I'll tell you what, though, I, if you know if they finish mid-table this year, I, I don't know that there's that there's too much that you can uh, no. you can say against them. That's four wins in a row for Newcastle. If the league started in November, they'd be top. So there, Ollie, still want to make fun of the tune and joke in here, you and your mate Calkin. <laughs> I, don't, I don't remember making fun of. Newcastle. I, I no, not Newcastle. Kinnear. I particularly remember making fun of him. I remember questioning what what, what it is he does and, and whether he was a very good appointment. And I don't think anything that um, Pardew has done or the team have done um, over the past few weeks particularly um, suggests that Joe Kinnear was an inspired appointment. But the, uh, the fact is that Pardew has got them playing again. They suddenly looked like a team again. I mean, going into that Chelsea game, um, he looked like he was, he was under real pressure. They, they looked like they were sort of dropping like a stone, and, and something kicked that day, and, and they seem to be playing again. And I, I absolutely welcome it. All right. So you still, can you still can't get any credit? No, it's, it's all Pardew and the players, right? Right. Whatever. Everton beat Stoke 4 0, and Gerard Delafeu steals the headline. Julian, he's not French, but he sounds French enough to the uncultured ear. Um, how good is this guy? I wish he was French. I think we're trying to find him like a nan or a granddad who came from France, but I think he's awesome. And for everybody who's seen him with the Spain youth teams or with the Barcelona reserve, knew that he had something very special. Uh, it was just a case about him adapting to the pace of the Premier League, the physicality of the Premier League, and he's done that so well. He still needs to do make better choices I think when he's gone the ball sometimes he goes too much on his own sometimes he should pass and he doesn't sometimes he, he, he passes when he shouldn't but when he, he's still so young but when he gets that right I think he's going to be a top 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 player I've seen him a lot and as you said at Spanish under 17s under 16s under 19s under 20s I've seen him all the way through he's a player that's got great pace he can play out on the right hand side he's a good runner with the ball he's a good runner off the ball you said it absolutely right decision making still leaves a lot to be desired. And that's going to be the, the telling point, whether he's going to be a top-class player or whether he's going to be an average player. That'll come, though, right? Hopefully, yes, if he gets the right tuition. <laughs> Gab, one for you. Big clash in La Liga this weekend. Barcelona without Messi away to Bilbao. How did it work out? Well, it worked out that uh, the uh, La Ley del San Mames, the law of the San Mames, uh, um, basically determined that Barcelona would lose. And uh, uh, now Atletico Madrid pulled level. Real Madrid just uh, a couple points behind. And uh, we, have a, uh, we have a legit title race, it seems. Um, uh, it, this is the second loss in a week for Barcelona. They also lost to Ajax in, in midweek. They had a lot of uh, absences, of course, from, from Victor Valdez to, to that messy guy who's pretty good. But I, it still what was, what was interesting about this game was Bilbao matched them for intensity. They they matched them for for desire. They matched them physically. They overpowered them physically, and uh, it was really really difficult for for Barcelona to find any kind of alternatives. And it's a bit disappointing because this is exactly what Tata Martino was trying to do to to give them um, different dimensions. That said, Bilbao at home are a really tough proposition. And the one melancholy part um, of, of this is that you kind of wonder if they still had their two homegrown guys, Javi Martinez and, and Fernando Llorente, if they hadn't been forced to basically let these guys go, 
um, where they'd be right now. Thank you to my panel, Stuart Robson, Julian Lawrence, and from an undisclosed location, which I'm reliably informed is not beautiful downtown Rippenden, it's Ollie Kay. Don't forget you can catch the highlights from every Premier League game before anyone else simply by downloading the Times app to your smartphone. Please check out details of our live shows via the links on our SoundCloud page. And thank you for listening. Till next time, bye-bye. Your subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times now comes with access to every Barclays Premier League goal. Refresh your app, choose your team, accept notification, and you're away. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.